Welcome to the Truth Wars podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If this podcast has encouraged you in any way, we'd like to ask you to leave a review for Truth Wars on whichever platform you listen on. Now, here's Olin. Acts chapter 15, and while you're turning there, let me pray for us. Father, um, thank you for all of your good gifts to us. Thank you most of all for Christ, uh, for the Holy Spirit, for your word, for Christian fellowship and community. I pray for these next few minutes together that you would help us to be all here mentally, psychologically, emotionally, spiritually. Lord, we'd be focused and, and we'd be focused on you through your word. Lord, heart, soul, mind, and strength, we'd be engaged. And as we seek to draw near to you, you would keep your promise. You would draw near to us. Lord, instruct us. Uh, We want our minds to be stretched, to be grown, that our capacity would be increased uh, by meeting with you in your word. But we don't want it to just stop with our minds. We want our hearts to be increased. We want to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We want to not just know the truth, but appreciate and enjoy the truth uh, to such a degree that it would change us, it would transform us, and that we would leave here, and we would want to apply it. And even when it's hard, uh, temptation rises, or just we're we're bored, we're tired, whatever it is, that we would be serious about uh, keeping your commandments uh, for your honor, for your glory, for our joy, Lord, and for the blessing of all those people that we're ministering to. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, what we're going to talk about this morning is the end of the Mosaic Law. And so, we kind of already started talking about this. So let me just, we were not here last week, so let me kind of give an overview of where we've been. All right, so um, Adam was created into a covenant of works, sometimes called the covenant of life. Okay, you could even call it the covenant of law, I think, if you wanted to. Uh, That relationship, what is covenant really about? It's about how we relate to God. So Adam was created in this covenant of works with God. Obey. Perfectly, and then you'll live eternally blessed. But, point two, Adam sinned, and all people sinned in him and fell in him. Then we're all born dead in our sins. And internally, everybody knows that's true, whether they'll admit it or not. Go see Romans 1. Okay? Point three, so now all people come into the world under the covenant of works, okay? already having broken it in Adam and thus condemned. Point four, God made a covenant of grace with Adam, starting in Genesis 3. Verse 15, this promise, okay? But he clarified it under Abraham. It became more clear, more bright, more obvious with Abraham. Point five, God made a covenant with Israel under Moses that highlighted the law. We we talked about this. It's a little bit confusing, okay? But in some sense, what God did in the Mosaic law was he put the covenant of works and the covenant of grace side by side again, just like he had done in Genesis chapter 3. But what was at the forefront, so to speak, was law. That was what was emphasized, Christ fulfilled the law in all three parts of the law, the ceremonial law, the judicial law, and the moral law, in our place as our substitute that we might be saved. Now, today, what's the role of the Mosaic law and the Mosaic covenant now? That's what we're trying to really wrestle with and answer. Okay, We're primarily going to look at a passage in Genesis, but we're going to start in Acts because, remember, when Christianity first started, it was essentially a sect of Judaism. Right? I mean, we know Judaism was, was the one true biblical religion, but just like Christianity today, there were all these different sects, 
And some of them were almost like denominations. They were, they were true Jews, but they just kind of had some particulars they liked to emphasize. Some of them were not true Jews. They had gone far afield. You know, you think about the Sadducees, the Pharisees. They had different beliefs. I mean, the Pharisees literally believed in angels. Sadducees didn't believe in angels. Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection. All these different sects. So when Christianity first started, in some sense, it was just like this new sect of Judaism. Now, it was true Judaism. It was the fulfillment. But as Christianity spreads, more Gentiles, non-Jews start becoming Christians, and that's where you get some controversy. Look in Acts chapter 15 is, is when this kind of all comes to a head in a very big way. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. Acts chapter 15, starting verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So there were some people, at least they were professing believers. Were they really false believers that were acting like professing, you know, acting like Christians, but they weren't, a Judas, so to speak? Or were they real Christians, but they were just so immature and so unwell taught that they were teaching false doctrine? That can happen too, right? I remember hearing Sinclair Ferguson say one time, he was talking about John Wesley, and he said, we have to distinguish between the washed heart, somebody that's really converted, and the confused head, right? I mean, there's a lot of Christians out there that believe wrong things including us, right? Now, what is it that's wrong that I believe? I don't know, but I know that my theology is not perfect. I'm going to get to heaven. There's going to be at least one thing, probably a lot more that God's like, you were wrong about that, okay? So, but it doesn't matter. They were teaching wrong truth. They were saying, listen, we're great with Gentiles becoming Christians, but if Gentiles are going to become Christians, of course they've got to trust in Jesus. Obviously, we believe Jesus is the Messiah. But they've also got to go back and obey the Mosaic Law, primarily circumcision, the ceremonial part of the law. They've got to do that because that was so much of what their identity was wrapped up in. Go down to verse 5. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, so again, remember, you had Pharisees that were becoming Christians, but they were still steeped in this legalistic background. Okay, And, and it takes a long time for that stuff to get baked out of your soul, doesn't it? rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them in order to keep the law of Moses. So they're still saying the Mosaic Covenant still stands. We love Jesus. He's our Messiah, but we still got to keep this. Down to verse 10. Now, therefore, this is Peter speaking, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? So part of what Peter says is, listen, guys, none of us have ever been able to perfectly keep the Mosaic Law. And that's part of what Christ came to free us from. Why are you trying to go back under that old yoke of slavery? Okay. Now, um, that was the question they're wrestling with. So let's go over to Galatians 3, and this is where we're going to spend most of our time today. And we've already looked at a lot of this passage. We're going to kind of pick up where we left off in Galatians 3, I think about three weeks ago. Okay, uh, We'll start with just Galatians 3, verse 17, to kind of get some of the continuity of what we've already looked at. Okay. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary applies more than one, but God is one. 
Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. Okay? But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Okay? Y'all, y'all remember that? God makes the covenant of grace very clear with Abraham. It's all by promise. I will be your God. You'll be my people. And so Paul saying 430 years later, when this Mosaic covenant comes in, it doesn't trump the promise. Okay? Now, so here's the question. Then why the law? Why the Mosaic law? Why the Mosaic covenant? I mean, right, we already did this briefly. We're going to do it longer today. Because let's just be honest, sometimes it seems like it makes it more confusing, right? I had a good friend of mine. He's kind of my age and stage. He's, a, he's an elder in a good church. And he, he sent me an email this just a couple of days ago. And then call, I said, man, i got to call you. i got a question about the Mosaic Law. How, how much of that are we supposed to keep? He's like, I know some of it's good, like don't commit adultery. I mean, right? I, I know we're supposed to keep that. But then there's, what, what about stuff like tithing? And you ask a great question. What about like the Sabbath? And how does all that work? It, it's confusing. Okay? So, God, why did you do it this way? What was the purpose of the Mosaic Law and Covenant? Okay, three things. It's a tutor, it's temporary, and it's terminated. That's what we're going to look at today. It's a tutor, it's temporary, and it's terminated. So, the first point. The Mosaic Law, the Mosaic Covenant, was a tutor. Okay, look at verse 23. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Now, this, is a, this can be a confusing passage because what Paul is not saying primarily here, he is not saying every individual before they become a Christian is held captive under uh, the Mosaic Law, right? Because there's plenty of people that never know about the Mosaic Law that become Christians. Now, he probably is implying in one sense that anybody that becomes a Christian before they're a Christian they were held prisoner under the covenant of works, the covenant of law, right? But right now, he's primarily focused on Jewish people. And so what he's saying is, in the whole Old Testament, it was like they were held captive under a tutor. Now, when we think of tutor, we think about this. We think about, you know what? I was in college, and I did good in a couple of my classes. But, man, when it came to math, I was just I was terrible. I was a moron. So I had to go to like the university center or whatever, and I had to find some older, wiser student and say, teach me math. That's not the way that tutors worked in the Greco-Roman world. Tutors in the Greco-Roman world were more like a nanny and a very strict disciplinary. And it would be something like that some rich family would have some son that they wanted to educate to take over their inheritance one day. And they'd say, listen, I'm delegating to this tutor. You're in charge of my son. You better make sure he learns. You better make sure he grows. And so part of what this tutor would do every day is escort the kid to school, get him to the class where whoever the great philosopher was that was teaching. And then the tutor might even stay in class as this great philosopher was up front teaching. And if the kid, you know, started messing around, playing with his friends, the tutor might be the one to slap him in the back of the head. Okay? So he was a strict disciplinarian that was making sure the kid was going to learn. And so what Paul is saying is, God, the nation of Israel, we've already referenced this before, was like the church of God in infancy, right? The nation of Israel was like the church of God where all the furniture was in the right place, but all the lights were out. So they didn't really understand what was going on. 
Keep your finger here in Galatians 3 because we're coming right back. But everybody flip over to John chapter 1 for just a second. John chapter 1. John chapter 1, and skip down to verse 17. Now listen to this. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now just let's think about this verse together for a second. If you were going to interpret that verse in a wooden, literal fashion, what would that verse mean? In the Old Testament, really the only thing you had was what? Law. Law. Okay? And in the New Testament, the only thing you have is what? Grace and truth. Grace and truth. So, do you don't have truth in the Old Testament? Of course not. Of course the Old Testament is true. And do you not have law in the New Testament? Well, of course you have some law, right? And did you not have grace in the Old Testament? Of course you had grace. Well, what's it saying? He's saying this. In the Old Testament... What was at the forefront? What was God emphasizing? He was emphasizing law. But in the New Testament, what is he emphasizing? Grace. Does that make sense? The Old Testament in so many ways was the setup for the New Testament. I think John Calvin said in the Old Testament, it was like you could see the gospel, but from a long way off. In the New Testament, you see it close. Look over real quick to John chapter 1, verse 29, very famous verse. John the Baptist, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now imagine you got to go on a special mission trip all the way to a North Korean prison camp. And you are sharing the gospel, you learned how to speak Korean, and you're talking to these North Koreans who have grown up their whole life in atheistic, communist North Korea, they don't know anything about the Bible. Never heard any of this. And the first thing you said to them is, Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What do you think is going to be their understanding in response to that? Yeah, and, but, but let's just pause right there. Yes. But based off of Romans 1, what have we said everybody knows about? Whether they say they know about it or not. They do know about sin. What else do they know about? They do know there's a creator. So you might have to explain the concepts, but that would resonate at some level. There is a creator, and I'm a sinner. So let's just say they get that. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What's going to be the hard part of that sentence for them? The Lamb? What's the Lamb have to do with anything? I can get this God concept. I can get this sin concept. But when John the Baptist to the Jewish nation said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, it made total sense, or it should have, right? All those millions of lambs that have been slaughtered over the years, they all pointed towards this. Right? So, um, the Old Testament is the setup for the New Testament. Okay, um, the whole Mosaic covenant, in a sense, was about keeping the nation of Israel, the church in infancy, close to God, even though they didn't understand much, preparing them for when the Messiah came. 
I mean, think about this. Probably some of us have had this experience. And if you haven't, I bet you know somebody that had. Some very rich, wealthy, maybe grandparent or something. And says, I want to leave an inheritance to my kids or my grandkids. But right now, my grandkids are so little, they're morons. So there's no way I'm going to say, you know, seven-year-old grandkid, I'm going to give you $100,000. So what they do, they put the $100,000 in a trust. And they say, when you turn 25 and your mind's fully developed, then you can have access to the $100,000. Does that make sense? That's kind of like what was going on with God and the nation of Israel. He said, you're, you're not mature enough yet to handle the full gospel. You won't fully understand it. I'm holding you in trust under the Mosaic Covenant to prepare you for it. And part of it, listen, it should have been, I mean, it was exposing the sinfulness and the stubbornness of their heart. It was leading them to Christ. Right? We spent a whole week on this. It, it shows me how sinful I am. I'm trying to obey. I'm trying to obey. The more I try to obey, the more I get weary. I can't obey. I need a Savior. Okay? It was preparing them. So the law is a t- tutor. But also, the law is a, um, it's temporary. Okay? So let's start in verse 23, Galatians 3, 23. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came. Same idea as a tutor there, okay? In order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Right? When the ancient Roman child got to a certain age, he didn't have to serve under the disciplinarian anymore. He was free from that. In the New Testament, that's what happens. Old Testament, you were saved by faith, but it was in a shadowy way. In the New Testament, it becomes very clear. Verse 26, For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. The lights have come on. Everything's clear. Grace and truth has been pushed to the front. Okay? Now, what maybe the main thing, certainly one of the main things in the Old Testament that wasn't clear is that when an individual trusted in the coming Messiah, you're adopted into the family of God. And that's one of the things in the New Testament that gets forced in front of our face. This is an intimate salvation, an intimate relationship. Maybe some of the leaders, the really spirit-filled people in the Old Testament, like David or Isaiah, got it. Moses, right? He talked to God like a man talks face-to-face with his friend. But for the average Israelite, they didn't get all that. They didn't understand it. And now it's like everybody's getting to experience it. Um, flip back to Jeremiah chapter 31 for just a second. Jeremiah chapter 31. And you see a prophecy of this. Jeremiah chapter 31. <clears throat> and skip down to verse 31. So Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Now, forgiveness was in the Old Testament, right? But what he's saying is it's going to be a much more intimate relationship in the New Testament. In some sense, it's almost like they're not going to have to all have, they're not just all going to have to sit back and listen to Moses all the time. 
They're going to have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them with such reality and power. That doesn't mean we don't have teachers, right? We still have teachers. But there's a real sense in which I can interact directly with God in a very personal and intimate way. Uh, Flip over to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, starting verse 1. For since the law, again, Mosaic covenant, okay? For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of the realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Okay? They weren't really saved and forgiven by a lamb, but it pointed to the one true lamb. Verse 2. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. Guys, in some sense, what happened? That every time they sinned in the Old Testament, they had to bring a bull or a goat or a lamb or two you know, pigeons or something. It was just this constant reminder of their sinfulness. It was this constant reminder of how broken they are, how messed up they are, and how I keep bringing these sacrifices because God told me to. And yet, at some level, it doesn't feel like it's working really good because I have to keep coming back over and over and over again. And that's part of the beauty of Christ and the cross and the resurrection is it's done. No more sacrifice. It's over. The price has been paid. Verse 3. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Okay. Now, I want us, as best we can, based on what we understand of kind of Old Testament religion, to try to put yourself in the shoes in the Old Testament of a very devout Jew, a very devout religious person, and think about what the experience of going to church would have been like, going to temple. It would have been very sober. And if you were going... You know, there would be the the sound probably of animals screaming as they got their throats cut. There'd be the smell of flesh burning on the altar and the organs. There probably literally at points would have been rivers of blood coming from all the animals that were being slaughtered. Right? And then there's different courts. Right? The Gentiles can go into this one, but not the next one. The women can go into this one, but not the next one. The men can go into this one, but not. And then there's the Holy of Holies. Nobody can go in except the high priest once a year. And even him, you better put a little bell on the end of his robe and tie a rope around him. If he does something wrong, he's going to die. And we can't go in to get the body. We'll just have to pull him out. It's like the whole worship experience would have kind of been like God was saying, you don't belong here. Be careful. I'm holy and you're not. Yes, come and worship me, but be careful, right? The emphasis would have been, you don't belong here. Aren't you glad that's not what church is like in the New Testament? Now, we still don't belong. But again, what has been brought to the forefront is God's love and compassion and gentleness and mercy. It says, I love you. I want you. No, you don't belong. But in Christ, you do belong. And you're my child. You're my adopted son. And I want you to be near. It lays a foundation, hopefully, so that we never forget the holiness of God. How much he hates sin. How much he desires righteousness in all of his creation. So that when we get grace, we ought to be humbled and never self-righteous. You know, in awe and never bored with it.
So the Mosaic Law was a tutor. It was temporary, and now it's terminated. So back to Galatians 3. Back to Galatians chapter 3. Verse 27. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Excuse me, that's 25. 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, just a side note that I hate that we even have to talk about what what we do in, in today's crazy age. There are people that will try to take that verse and say, see, even the Bible says there's no such thing as male or female. Right? We're all the same. Be whatever you want. Women can do anything a man can do. All that kind of stuff. That's obviously not what that verse is teaching. What that verse is teaching is this. There was a fairly famous prayer that Pharisees would pray in the temple in Jesus' day. And they would say, I thank you, God, that I'm not a woman, I'm not a slave, and I'm not a Gentile. And why? Because they, to be... A Jewish free man, you had a lot more privileges in society. And what Paul is saying is, in Christ, we're all equal. Are there Jews and there Greeks? Of course. Are there some people that are bosses and others that are employees? Of course. Are there man and female? Of course. But when it comes to my status before God, when it comes to my sense of identity and self-worth before God, none of that plays into it. The only thing that matters is, Christ chose me. Christ saved me. Christ died for me. Christ rose for me. Okay. Um, Verse 29. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offsprings, heirs according to promise. So here's what it means. Hypothetically, let's say you did go and have this mission trip in the North Korean prison camp, and you were actually able to lead somebody to Christ. But, you know, too bad. they got to stay in North Korean prison camp, and you get to come home back to America. I mean, practically speaking, who's got the better life? We do. But eternally speaking, we're total equals with that slave living in a North Korean prison camp. He's my brother. I'm not better than him. I'm not more worthwhile than him. And for all eternity... We're going to be co-heirs with Christ in heaven. And that's what ought to dominate my thoughts and my feelings about my life. So let me just make this super practical for us for a second. Most of us probably don't spend much time comparing ourselves to the slave in the North Korean prison camp, right? We compare ourselves to other people that we go to work with and we see at church and all that kind of stuff. And then we do feel like, well, that guy's got more of this than me or this guy's blessed in this way or blah, blah, blah. And then we really can struggle with envy. But if I'm really meditating on these type of truths, envy should never enter into my heart at all. It's like, I am so richly blessed in Christ. It's insane. I'm a joint heir with Christ. I'm going to sit on a throne in heaven one day for all eternity. Who cares if I have a crappy car, right? Who cares about all these little petty things in life? They just shouldn't come into any issue in my heart and soul. So let's take just a couple minutes and apply this, okay? Why so much time on this? One, we need to know how to read the Old Testament and all the laws that are there, okay? We'll talk more about the moral law later because as we said in here before, it predated the Mosaic Law, right? The ceremonial law is terminated, The judicial law is terminated. 
But the moral law is not terminated. We're going to talk about that more. Remember, I mean, it functioned even in Genesis chapter 4. It wasn't written down, but Cain was supposed to know. You don't murder your brother. Ought to be obvious. It's written on your heart. Okay? The civil and the ceremonial laws were applications of the moral law for a certain place and a certain time. Christ has fulfilled them. We've already said that. Think about this. From 70 A.D. until 1948, the nation of Israel didn't even exist. How could you apply the civil law code? The nation didn't even exist. From 70 A.D. until now, the temple doesn't exist. I mean, even the most devout Jews, they don't do sacrifice anymore because the temple doesn't exist. It's obviously been fulfilled and it's gone in Christ. Now, are there principles that we can learn from the ceremonial law, from the judicial law that apply to our life that might help us have wisdom in life? Of course. Okay? But we're not bound under that anymore. Now, that's more of an academic reason. The second is more personal. And here it is. All of us are tempted at different times and different ways towards some form of works righteousness. I mean, that's what those Pharisees that had become true, seemingly true believers in Christ were doing in Acts chapter 15. They were trying to hang on to some of their super spiritual status. And we're the Pharisees, right? We're trying to base our sense of self-worth on the fact we're circumcised, those Gentile Christians aren't. You've got to make them get circumcised too. Why do they get to come in? Now, let me try to give an example. I've used this before. Some of y'all may have heard me use this before, but, uh, I, 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 you know, Nobody that I know today is arguing about circumcision as a spiritual sign of favor today. But we do it in different ways. So, flip over to Luke chapter 7. We're going to look at one more passage that we've mentioned briefly before, but we're going to kind of go a little bit more in depth today. Luke chapter 7. But think about this with me in your mind. Okay, I want you to think about the last time, and don't worry, I'm not going to ask you to share, so you can be very honest in your mind with yourself. I want you to think about the last time that you felt insecure in life. And it probably was something like this. The last time maybe that you went into some kind of crowded room and you didn't know many people, or maybe you did know a lot of people and you didn't think they liked you or whatever, but the last time you kind of felt just a little bit awkward or insecure, you went to a wedding reception where you didn't know many people or you know, you went to some church function where you were going to have to speak and you were nervous and you weren't ready, whatever it was, okay? The last time you felt insecure, right? Here's the question. What did you kind of run to in your mind? What did you say to yourself in your mind that made you feel better about yourself? You understand the question? And let me, let me just kind of give you a few hypothetical answers to prime the pump. Because I think what some people do is they walk in a room and they feel a little awkward or insecure, and they look around and they say, well, you know, I do feel like I'm more physically attractive than probably 95% of the people in here, so that makes me feel great about myself. There's a bunch of ugly people in here, right? Others of us, we may walk in the room and you're like, ah, uh, you know, on the physical looks department, I'm struggling compared to this room. But I bet you I got a 4.0 and most of these people will be working for me one day. You know, they're not near as smart as I am. Others of us are like, I don't have much going to, you know, physical good looks. I wasn't that smart in college. Um, you know, but I'm a lot more godly. I memorized the shorter catechism as a kid and I still know it today. So I'm just going to boast in my shorter catechism knowledge. And there's usually, listen, this is a class full of guys. There's usually always at least one guy that is kind of thinking goes this way. It's like, well, I'm not that smart. I'm not that godly. I'm not that good looking. I'm not that rich. But if the stuff goes down in here, I could probably kill everybody in here with my bare hands if I had to. And that's the guy that watched too many Jason Bourne movies or something. You know what I mean? But here's my thing. We all have something that we're tempting at time, tempted at times to boast in other than Christ. Does that make sense? And for the Pharisees, 
They were trying, that even seemingly had trusted in Christ, they were still trying to boast in, to hope in some of their keeping of the Mosaic Covenant. Now, um, again, I don't think most Christians today are stupid enough or immature enough to say, well, if I memorize the shorter catechism, that's going to get me into heaven. I don't think we do that. We're not thinking it's really going to save us, but we do, in some sense, depend on it to functionally save us in awkward social interactions. Does that make sense? Make us feel better about ourselves, and we shouldn't be open to it. So, with all that in mind, let's look at Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, starting verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. So just think about this. A lot of the Pharisees hated Jesus, right? This Pharisee seems to actually like Jesus. He seems to be interested. He invites him to his house. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, we don't know for sure, but almost all the times when it refers to a woman as a sinner like that, it was some kind of sexual sin. She was either a known prostitute or a known adulterer who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with his, her tears and wiped them with her hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, notice this, he's just thinking in his own mind, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Now just pause here for a second. Who is the Pharisee comparing himself to? The woman. The woman. And who else? Jesus. And Jesus. And how is the Pharisee making himself feel better about himself? I know more than this guy does. Suppose that he's this great prophet everybody's flocking to. Doesn't seem like much of a great prophet to me. I know more than he does. How else? What else is he kind of boasting in his heart? This woman's this terrible sinner out there committing all these scandalous sins. Not me. I'm a righteous person. You see what he's doing? I, he's boasting in, look at me. I'm so righteous. I'm so wise. I ought to be the famous guy that everybody wants to come in here and Be careful what you think when you're hanging out with Jesus. Okay? I heard one preacher say, man, if I was ever hanging out with Jesus, I would just be trying to like meditate on like scripture songs all the time because he can read your brain, you know? And uh, so here it is, verse 40. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, Say it, teacher. He's like, Man, I'm ready for whatever you got. You don't know who you're dealing with over here, Jesus. I'm so spiritual. I'm so righteous. I'm so put together. I'm so knowledgeable. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. She gave me, you gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little 
loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, guys, think about this. What is Jesus doing here? Okay. Let me tell you what he's not doing. He's not saying, well, Simon, you're right. You are such a spiritual, wise prophet, teacher. You just don't have much sin. And she's a whore. She's got a ton of sin. That's why she's so affectionate. Right? I mean, if that was the teaching of this passage, what that would mean is, well, I guess I need to go out and do some scandalous sin. If I want to really love Jesus, i got to go, you know, I need to go rob a bank or something. Maybe I'll kill somebody, and then I'll feel so forgiven. Obviously, that's insane. But I did have a friend years ago, and it's a good friend. He was even working for a ministry when he told me this. And he said, man, he said, the only times that I really feel close to Christ is after I look at porn. Because I feel so broken, and I'll go and like maybe read Psalm chapter 51 or something, and I cry and I repent, and I feel like I have this deep gospel experience. That's the only time I feel close to Christ. Now, I really appreciated his honesty, but it's not hard to see the problem in that, do you? I mean, something's going to happen psychologically that says, well, I want to feel close to Christ. I mean, that, we've got to learn to see even our tiniest sins as terrible and deadly sins. And that's part of the way that the Mosaic Law, in some sense, <laughs> rightly understood, can still be a tutor to us today. I'm in Christ, but when I'm reading through the Old Testament and there's 614 different laws... We ought to think about all of those animals getting their throats cut, all the blood, all the burning, and say, I don't belong. Even if you're the best kid, right, that's never done any big scandalous sins, it's like, I don't belong here. And yet this Savior, Savior condescends to have so much mercy on me. And guys, do we not just know, I know we know it, do we feel the weight of that reality? You don't belong here. And yet, you're all the way in. It's not a halfway covenant, right? It's not bunkhouse theology. You've been adopted. You're a joint heir with Christ. This Pharisee was running to his outward morality, his outward keeping of the Jewish ceremonial law to boast in himself. Because part of what the ceremonial law didn't say, but the Pharisees had kind of added to it is, you don't even touch a sinful person. I mean, listen, total side note, we'll probably get into this later. That's what legalism starts to do, is it starts adding to the Word of God. Because it's like, well, no, no, I want to add some stuff that I can boast in, that I'm doing better than other people, right? We'll probably do a whole other lesson on it later. Okay. Thinking about the law, even still today, the moral law of God, still at some level as a teacher that humbles me and reminds me how much I need Christ, even though I'm already a Christian. It reminds me, I need a Savior today. I need the blood of Christ applied to my heart today. If the blood of Christ was taken off of my life, I'd be in hell right now. And I would totally merit it. And what should that do to us, guys? It should make us humble yet confident. Do you notice what this woman does? I mean, what do you think it took for the known prostitute of town to go inside the Pharisee's house? I guarantee you she didn't get an invitation. But she was so smitten with Jesus. She was so in awe of his love and his kindness that he had forgiven her. That she doesn't care. She runs to him. She wants to worship. She doesn't care what other people think about her. 
mean, I think that one of the major sins that most Christians struggle with today is the comparison game. We are locked into, well, what's he think about me and how are they evaluating me? And the only thing that's really going to free us from that is kind of this magnetism that sucks us into, I really only care what Jesus thinks. And if Jesus is smiling at me, who cares what the world thinks? Guys, it's freeing. It's so empowering. But it doesn't start with having all your ducks in a row. It starts with being utterly humbled by what a mess you are part of from Christ and just worshiping him in light of his transforming love. Okay? And when we're really experiencing both of those realities at the same time, almost a sense of crushedness for how sinful I am, but a sense of joy and delight at how loved and forgiven I am, that's when you really start to change. Because then it's like, hey, it's not just I know I have to obey, so I'm going to try to obey. Like, no, no, I want to obey. I want to obey the law, the moral law of God at all costs. Why? Because he's worthy. Because he's worthy. Okay? That's my identity. That's my covenant is Christ. Let's pray. Father, we understand these truths. I understand these truths. But I don't understand them enough. I want to understand them more. I want to taste and see more of your goodness, more of your presence, more of your loveliness. Lord Jesus, that you have fulfilled the whole law for us. I pray that would sink in the basement of our souls. We really would be freed from the comparison game. Who cares what other people think about us? We would be so in love with you, so in awe of who you are that we would be changed from one degree of glory to the next. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If you have any questions for Olin, please email him at olin.stubbs at campusoutreach.org. Thank you.